Hey everybody, this is Encuentro. I'm uh, I'm back temporarily, as you guys all know. I uh, I was not able to take my flight because I uh, again tested positive for COVID. Um, so I'll be doing a couple Encuentro episodes until uh, you know I'm well, until I test negative. Thank you for your prayers. Um, and just know that I've also been praying for for all of you. Let's begin with the prayer of St. Francis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, make me a means of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, let me bring joy. Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled, but to console. Not so much to be understood, but to understand. Not so much to be loved, but to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in forgiving that we are forgiven. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Our reading for today is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. It is not from the uh, Gospels. It is actually from uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Because uh, today, the 25th of January, is the uh, feast of the conversion of uh, St. Paul. Uh, and so let's, um, let's go through the reading. Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. On his journey, as he was nearing Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Soul, soul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was unable to see, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is there praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he may regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, 
and children of Israel. And I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. And so Ananias went and entered the house, laying his hands on him. And he said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me. Jesus who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately things like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and when he had eaten, he recovered his sight. He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Is not this the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those who call upon this name? And he came here expressly to take them back in chains to the chief priests? But Saul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Christ. There's a very brief line in the rather lengthy uh, reading that we had that summarizes in, in the most succinct yet profound way not only the transformation uh, that Saul went through, you know, becoming Paul eventually, but it's also at the heart and core of what all of us find ourselves struggling with from time to time. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You will be told what you must do. He who journeyed to Damascus with all the rage, with all the anger and fury of one who was completely determined to wipe out what he did not completely understand, was now to enter Damascus, led by the hand of others, to one whose very life and faith he had wished to destroy. And he was to do what he was told. It was the first command Saul received from Christ. And it was as simple as that. He didn't argue. He didn't resist. He simply obeyed. Here was a man who commanded other men, who was a leader, who knew what he wanted, and who knew how to go about achieving it. And yet he simply obeyed. He submitted his will, his heart, his mind, body, and soul to the one who, from this moment on, would direct his entire life. Now, a couple years ago, I invited a priest at the seminary in Miami out to dinner. It was his ordination anniversary. Now, this was, I'd say, about nine years ago. It was his 53rd ordination anniversary. 53 years as a priest. And he was ordained in Carthage. That's in North Africa. You know, in a diocese that isn't even a Christian territory anymore. 53 years a priest. And again, that was nine years ago. Which means that this year, he'd be a priest for... um, 62 years. Huh? He was ordained in 1960. 
you know, interestingly enough, the guy is still at it. Still very active in ministry. 62 years into the priesthood. 62. Why would anyone want to do that? That was a question one of my students at a university in Rhode Island many years ago asked me. Why would anybody want to do that? Why indeed? Why would a young man ever want to get into what that priest did throughout his life? You know, why would a young woman ever want to join a religious order and become a nun? You know, why would a medical doctor, you know, whom I know, after working in the United States for several decades and creating a comfortable and wonderful life for himself and his family over there, why would somebody like that, that decide to return to the Philippines and begin working in a small clinic that he set up for poor people? And every day, you'd see long lines of people outside his clinic. Mind you, he still charges those who are able to pay. You know, he would always tell me the labor is worth his keep. Hmm? But the consultation fee, you know, again, only for those who can afford it, is $2. That's 100 pesos. Why would anyone do that? Why would a parent, you know, work so hard, some of them, you know, several jobs, have very little sleep, you know, in order not only to uh, provide for the kids, but, you know, see to it that they have a good life. Why would they do that when they could just live their lives for themselves? A couple years ago, I was teaching a group of uh, professional men who were studying to become permanent deacons. These were lawyers, doctors, uh, engineers, architects, teachers, uh, security guards. And I used to teach them on Wednesday nights from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. It was three hours, you know, it was a three-hour class because that was the only time during the week that they could actually attend classes, theology and philosophy classes, because they had work. They also had some classes on weekends and Saturdays. And uh, that particular uh, Wednesday, I remember uh, dismissing them earlier because I had a couple things going on uh, that I had to prepare for, not only that night, but the following day. So I dismissed them earlier, probably like 15 minutes before. So it was like 9.45 at night. And I said goodbye to them and I was rushing out. And as I was walking out of the building, one of them was walking, you know, with me and he was also in a rush. So I said, uh, as I was heading to my room, obviously, in the seminary. So I said, hey, have a good night. Uh, I'll see you next week. Uh, drive safely. You know, take care. Uh, sleep well. And he says to me, oh, no, no, Father, I'm, uh, that would be nice. But no, I'm going back to my job. I said, going back to your job? It's almost 10. He says, yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I, I work until 4 in the morning. And I only ask my boss to allow me 4 hours, you know, uh, on Wednesday night so I can attend uh, these classes. I'm thinking to myself, you know, this man is a family. He works until very early in the morning and he's still able to carve four hours 
on his Wednesday on Wednesday nights in order to give to his classes so that he could become a deacon and serve some more after serving his family. Why would anyone do that? You know, one time a good priest friend of mine who was kind of poking fun of me, you know, he always calls me an antisocial person because I'm always in my room studying. He says, you're the, uh, you're the friendliest antisocial person that I know. And, you know, it, it, it's quite true. Uh, I prefer solitude. You know, I prefer study, reading, reflection, writing. Sometimes I prefer that to the company of people. Even if I do enjoy chatting with people for hours, mind you. Um, but you see, that wasn't always the case. You know, I was, I was never really this studious, scholarly individual when I entered seminary you know when I was interviewed uh, for my application to the seminary uh, and the priest asked me why I wanted to enter seminary I, I never said because I want to study real hard and become a scholar you know and and get a doctorate and become a professor and write books I never said those things when I applied to seminary I just said I want to help people especially poor people that's all I wanted to do. And yet, all throughout my time as a seminarian, you know, those forming me, the priests who were my professors and formators, pushed me in another direction. And I followed. You know? I was a fun-loving seminarian who, you know, did well in his studies, but I was never really a scholar in it. That's where they pushed me, you know, to scholarship, to study, because I was always told, you know, that's what the church needs from you. And that's what the Lord wants you to do. You know, I followed with all my heart and soul. I followed, you know, parish life in my mind gradually receded, though the attraction of being with people and caring for them you know, as a, as a simple parish priest, that never really went away. You know, one of my biggest disappointments, although, you know, I call it a disappointment, it's not really a disappointment, but for lack of a better word, let's call it that. One of my biggest disappointments came when after I finished my studies in, in Louvain in Belgium, and I was so looking forward to at least, you know, a couple months in a parish before I was ordained a priest. I was a deacon at that time. And then I received a letter from the cardinal, you know, Manila and, and you know, and, and, you know, the rector of the seminary saying that, you know, they, they need a pre they need somebody in seminary, you know, uh, because uh, they need a spiritual director. They lost one of the spiritual directors and that instead of being assigned to the parish as I was, as the original plan was, that I was going to be assigned to the seminary as a spiritual director, you know, immediately as soon as I got home. Uh, and so I got home, you know, on the nineteenth uh, of September, nineteen ninety-eight. I defended my doctoral dissertation. I was still a deacon; wasn't a priest yet. On the twentieth, I packed my bags. On the twenty-first, I flew out uh, from Manila, from Louvain to Manila, and I was here the following day. And a couple of days later, I was in seminary with twenty-five young seminarians awaiting me as their spiritual director. And I was so excited. I was so excited about it. You know, yeah, I wanted to be in a parish, but 
But the moment I met those young kids and, you know, and uh, the moment I set foot in the seminary and started working, you know, all of that desire for what I thought my life was going to be, you know, parish, that receded, you know. Um, it's a little bit of sadness, yes, because I wanted to be in a parish for a while, but but I obeyed, and it was it was good. You will be told what to do. Jesus says to St. Paul on the road to Damascus. You will be told what to do. In one of his last conversations with Peter, you know, Jesus tells him, as a young man, you fastened your belt and did what you pleased. When you are older, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie you fast and carry you off against your will. There is the quiet, humble bending of one's will and submission of one's mind, body, and soul when one has met that thing, that ideal, that person that captures his heart. Paul, or soul, experienced it on the road to Damascus, and his life was never the same again. We are all on our personal roads to Damascus. We are all on a journey towards quietly and humbly bending and offering our will, our heart, mind, body, and soul to the one who has drawn our hearts towards himself. Like Paul, we may find ourselves not once, but daily, hourly, minute by minute, you know, uh, learning to listen to that voice that will command us for the rest of our lives, most especially us seminarians and priests and religious. You will be told what to do. May we learn to love that voice with all our heart, to embrace it with all our mind, and surrender our entire being, body, and soul to it, no matter where it leads. And trust me when I tell you, it leads only to good. That doesn't mean that the road is going to be smooth and easy, but it will always be good. I know, I've been on that road for 36 years and it is heaven on earth.